0: Welcome everybody to NEC Now, I'm joined, this is Ron Ratner, by the way, and I'm joined by a special guest today, Jared Grasso, head coach at Bryant University, former player in the league at Quinnipiac. Jared, thanks for joining us today. How is it going? How is the quarantine for you and your family?
1: You know, it's day to day. We're plugging along. Family's healthy, so I'm blessed. Uh, It's been obviously an interesting time in terms of managing a basketball program and managing my family. but doing the best we can and taking it day by day.
0: Congrats. I heard we have a new addition coming to the family this summer.
1: We do. I'll be a girl dad. I have a baby girl doing in August. So exciting times there. So uh, things will get a little more hectic around this house in a couple of months.
0: So you'd be three fifths on the way to a starting lineup, correct? We go. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about you as uh, growing up as a student athlete. Um, you were a Long Island kid. You played at St. Anthony's. Was basketball in your blood from the get-go growing up? Yeah,
1: I mean, my father was a coach. I've, I talk about my father all the time. You know, I grew up son of a coach, and I say ball, basketballs, put in my hand when I was three years old, and I never let go of it. I, I grew up in the gym. I grew up running around the gym watching my dad's team's practice. And so something that from a very young age was something I fell in love with very early on, and I was blessed to be around my dad and and a lot of great mentors during those years, high school, college, professional coaches that I was able to learn so much growing up, learn about the game, and most importantly, just develop the passion and love for the game, which for me is the most important thing. It's something I fell in love with, and it's never changed.
0: You had a heralded high school career. Um, As you were getting recruited, you're looking at Quinnipiac. They're transitioning from D2 to D1 at that time under Joe DeSantis. First of all, tell me about the recruiting process, and was it important for you to play in Division One?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. I actually have a, a funny story. Not a funny story, but ironic. I, I was So my junior year, summer before my junior year, they had the Adidas ABCD camp at Rutgers. Best camp ever, Sonny Vaccaro. I went to the Adidas camp, played pretty well, and had a ton of recruitment. Had 25 Division One offers. Um, thought I was going to end up playing at Stanford or some high major school. A week later, I went out to Vegas, I shot about one for 52 from the field, came back home, and my recruitment <laughs> kind of slowed down a little bit. So um, Coach DeSantis was there with me from the first day you were allowed to call juniors all the way through in my recruitment, was really aggressive recruiting me. And when he came in, I remember on his home visit, and as Coach D can do with his, you know, his Bronx accent and his New York swagger, came into my living room and I fell in love with him as a coach and kind of what I thought. He could offer me. I knew I could go in and play right away. Um, and that that was the most important thing for me. I was one of those guys that I, I needed to play. If I was going to be sitting on the bench, I wasn't going to be happy. And I knew it was a program, they're going from division two to division one and had struggled at the division two level. And I was confident enough that I just thought I'm going to go there and we're going to win. And it, it was a uh, coach. The Santa sold me a vision. And in my mind, it was, we're just going to win. Like, I don't, care division two division one I didn't even understand that I knew we were going to be division one we're playing UConn in our first game and we're going to win and to be honest it was the best decision I ever made
0: your first year you actually uh, Quinnipiac starts off pretty good you went of your first six games and then you get into league play team wins six games in their first uh, season in the NEC pretty good year how was your transition from high school to college ball
1: well, I remember my first play of my college career. We're playing UConn. They're number one in the country. We're number 300 and – they're 315 teams. we were number 315 in the country. I'm guarding Khalid Al-Amin. He catches the ball at the top of the key. I get in a defensive stance. He takes a dribble. I'm with, I'm with him. He takes a second dribble. I'm next to him. He puts his forearm into my chest. I'm on the floor. He's shooting a layup. Damples going crazy. So it was it – was uh, it was different than uh, what I'd experienced before. But for me, my first college game, playing in that environment, um, and I was thrown to the fire. I played 35 minutes a game as a freshman, and I think it was, it was what I wanted. I wanted to play right away. I wanted to play a lot of minutes. I was able to do that I had a pretty solid freshman year. And that group, when we went from uh, being a four-win Division II team to a nine-win Division I team, we started to propel the Quinnipiac program.
0: There were two players in the early stages besides yourself that really helped shape the program. You had Nate Pondexter and Bill Romano. So I want to talk about those two guys for a second. Now, Nate, to me, is one of those forgotten sort of NEC players along the way, but one of the best. He could do it all. He's the kind of guy that will lead your team in points, rebounds, assists, and steals. Like, he could just do it all. What did – it was two-time all-conference. What did Nate mean to the program when you arrived?
1: I mean, he's the best player I ever played with. We still talk all the time. Uh, he, He was special. Like you said, he could do everything. He was really a big point guard. He was just – he was today's version of just a player, could play any position, could guard one through four, could play the one through four, could handle it, could shoot it, made big shots, unorthodox game, but just a baller. was an under-the-radar guy who nobody heard of, went to uh, junior college in New Hampshire. No one knew who he was and came in. And he, he was the guy who, when I came in with that class, me, Bill, uh, Nate, Jamar Fields, I was like, who is this dude? Like, he could play. And I said, we actually got a chance to be pretty good. This dude could go. Um, (laughs) But he he was just – he was special. And he was a winner. And he had a smile and a personality that could light up a room, light up a gym, light up an arena. I still see him. He came to our Maryland game this year and just seeing his smile. He was the kind of guy who'd walk in the locker room, you see his smile and you feel better. He's just one of those guys you want to be around, which led to great leadership from him as well. So
0: true. Uh, Let's talk Bill Romano kind of sort of an at like this point, like an old school, back to the basket, good footwork type of player. Also good personality. We had so much fun with him in the early days. and with Tim Capstraw. Um, how important was Bill to the evolution of Quinnipiac in D1? Yeah.
1: So when, when we got to campus, me and Bill met, met the first day, obviously we stepped on campus and we're best friends ever since. He's my son's godfather um, and another one who under-recruited, under the radar, you know, is he too slow? Is he athletic enough? Well, no one could guard him in the post. He still has the best up and under move I've ever seen. Great footwork, great hands, great feet. And you're right, he was kind of a throwback where you could – you would really have someone you could throw it into the post who could score, and he was a winner. And he was tough, and he was competitive, and he was nasty. Um, and, and the biggest piece of it, like, we all got really close. And it's one of those things that I try and talk to my teams about now. Like, I have a special bond. Like, I have a group chat with my former players, my guys I played with, like, We all got really close really quickly. And I think it was the reason that those first two years we got pretty good. We had a group of guys who loved to play and loved to spend time together. And those two guys were really good players who could have played at a higher level. You know, now with all that level stuff and transfer stuff, those guys, they would have been transferring to Duke and Kentucky. (laughs) Those guys guys who could play at a higher level, and we ended up together. And it just, it's crazy how it worked out because great players who ended up having good, great careers together, and now we're able to talk about it and kind of, laugh at the stories of playing for Coach D in some of those times. But those two were, like, really good players that aren't talked about a lot but are really, really good players.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so the go to, let's go to Season 2, your sophomore year. Everything changes this year. You're 12-6 and six in the conference. You win 18 games. Nate has an MVP-level year. You got, you got Billy Ivory. Stanley has a real nice season there. Was – heading into that year, was this something you could have anticipated the leap that the team made?
1: Yeah, I thought we had four. It was That was an interesting group. I thought we had me, Bill, Ivory, Nate, and then Chris Stone was like the solid just roll guy who could guard, defend, didn't need to shoot the ball, could flow the ball, and we had four guys who were double-figure scorers and were all different and we kind of had interchangeable pieces. Um, so I thought that group really just meshed well together. It was one of those teams that had you know, a little bit of size, had a post player, had a couple flow guys off the bench – and we had four double-figure double scorers. And I still believe if that team could have played in the conference tournament, and we, we could have been an NCAA tournament team, we could have beat anybody on any given night. I think it was a talented group that just played very well together.
0: Agreed. Um, so that year for you personally, you shot uh, over 43% from three-point range, finished second in the league. You know who finished first that year in three-point percentage? Who was it, crimmel? Rob Crimmel did, yep. <laughs> he just edged you out by percentage points, um, uh, which I, is funny I, now.
1: If I knew that, I'd already got a few more shots up to be. <laughs> uh, what's
0: the art to being a great three-point shooter?
1: Repetition. I mean, you, you got to be in the gym. You gotta you got to be a gym rat. I mean, it's, I, it's funny. I was on a Zoom call with my guys last night, and I was I was talking about shooting. I said, "If you want to be a good shooter, go get in the gym and become a good shooter." Like you control that. If you take a thousand, I don't know a lot of guys who take a thousand shots a day, a day that don't turn themselves into great shooters. So for me, it was about repetition because I didn't have great. I'm a son of a coach. Who didn't have great form my hand was on the side of the ball I didn't have proper backspin my dad tried to change my shot multiple times stubborn kid I was I fought it and fought it I said I'm making shots why are we changing it I probably should have listened to probably would become a better shooter but I got a ton of shots up every day I mean a day didn't go by where I didn't get 500 to a thousand shots up so it's the work you put in I tell you, what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it and I was a gym rat I loved it I want to be in the gym I want to be a great player
0: Junior season now, you are now eligible for the NEC tournament first time, but team struggles. You add a good piece in Kason Mims that year, who becomes an all-time great kind of at the school, um, but the team struggles. How hard was that season for you knowing this is – you only got two more shots at this?
1: Yeah, that was a really difficult year for me personally. Um, my back problems started that season. Um, we kind of had a good guys but just not, not the right mix, and – it was a talented group. And that's why like on paper, that team was just as talented as the year before we went to Ireland the summer before that season. And like, we thought we were going to be very good. We added Kareem Lee. We added Colin Charles, Quezon Mims. Um, So I think we thought we had a chance to be very good. And we just, the the team didn't mesh. We didn't, it didn't fit. And I think we, we underachieved Um, kind of mid year that year, I started having some back problems that I just continued to play through, but that's kind of when, the downfall of my body kind of started. Um, but we struggled that year. It wasn't a, it wasn't a great year. Just the, the group didn't fit together.
0: So you got one more chance as a senior, your own last dance right there. And Coach DeSantis brings in two key players. He brings in Jeremy Bishop, one of the great natural rebounders in league history, and Rob Monroe, one of the fastest players I've ever seen with the ball in his hand. Uh, how did those two change the dynamic in your senior season?
1: I mean, Rob is one of the best players ever to play in Quinnipiac, probably ever to play in the league. Just he came in as he was a little kid. I remember he came on his official visit and we played pickup. And I was like, this kid can play. And they can pull up threes from 25 feet, going guy by guys with his speed. He was, he was prepared to play as a freshman. And Jeremy was just a man. I mean, like you said, best rebounder I ever played with, had a nose for the ball, would throw his body anywhere, diving into – the wall diving into the Steets for loose balls just a tough blue collar one of the best re- rebounders in the country and I think his toughness and rebounding changed our culture a little bit and it, it was a fresher group there was a freshness to that group Rasham banjo started to turn the corner yep. a little bit Kason was a year older and a year better so I think that group we saw was where we started to turn the corner again
0: so the team it's it's funny there was a lot of talent on that team but you guys were struggling into February you were six and nine in the conference. Then you start to pick it up. You win four out of your last five going into the NECs. This is your chance right here. In the first game, you got to go to a Wagner team, one of those Jermaine Hall teams that was really good, that would win the title the following year. You're going into that building. You go in and you win there, which was impressive to me at the time. Did that win? How big a win was that for the program?
1: Well, twofold. I missed, so I missed 11 games during that stretch in January and February. I was, I was out with the back. I, I didn't think I was coming back. They thought my career was over. I didn't, I didn't think I was playing again. Um, so I go into basically the middle of February with the doctor telling me I'm not going to play again. And there was a point I made a decision. I'm just, well, I'll deal with the consequences and decide. So I came back with three games left in the regular season and we ended up winning, I, I think our last two games. I know we won on senior day and then we go into the conference tournament at Wagner. Um, and I remember that game very vividly because I loved playing at Wagner. I was always comfortable playing against them. Derek's teams played really fast and helter skelter. And I knew I was going to get open shots in those games, playing the open floor. And I loved playing and I loved shooting in that gym. I always played well in that gym. So I think we went in there confident that we could win. I mean, if I felt like if I didn't miss 11 games that year, our record would have been a little bit different. Um, and so we go in, we beat a really good Wagner team with Jermaine Hall, and I think we, that was one of the better games we played that year. Um, and it wasn't a surprise. We thought we were good. Like, we, we walked in that gym thinking we can win. It wasn't one of those upsets where was, they didn't play well. No, we, we, I think we were just as good as them. We walked in that gym thinking we were going to beat them.
0: You move on to the semis. The, Wag- the first two rounds were at Wagner that year. So you play a UMBC team, uh, Peter Mulligan team. That was another super team. Um, you win that. You find yourself after a nine and nine league season, uh, you are in the final. Okay. This is your, 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 your big chance here. You are going to central Connecticut. Now this is one of the best teams in league history. They were 19 and one in the league. They won 27 games uh, all, you know, Hall of Fame type players on that team. was your confidence level the same as it was after Wagner and how were the practices leading up to that game?
1: I could barely walk at that point. The, the UMBC game, I barely played. I played like 35 minutes against Wagner. Um, I think I may have played five minutes against UMBC. I could barely walk. I think coach put me in at the end of the game. They were fouling. I made a couple of free throws. I barely practiced that week. Um, so I could try and be prepared to play. But I, so I remember after our last practice, I practiced the day before we stayed in a hotel the night before the central game. I remember I practiced the day before. I remember talking to Sean Barker from the New Haven Register, talking about the season, the story, exciting matchup, rivalry game. I remember we ended the interview, he was like, you're gonna beat those guys. I said, I know. And I really believed we were going there and we were going to win. Like my mind and our minds, like we were going to win the NAC championship. We were going to the NCAA tournament. I don't think there was a doubt in anyone on that team's mind that that was going to happen.
0: That's awesome. So you you get to game night, and I've I've said it a million times that that was the best atmosphere of any NEC final that I've been at. 90 minutes before the game, the, the, the legions of fans are on both sides of half court, the gold on one side, the blue on the other side, and it's deafening. 90 minutes before the game, I've never seen anything like that since. When you walked in that gym that night, what was it like for you and the guys?
1: I just got goosebumps thinking about that moment right there. Um, I was the first one to walk on the floor for warmups. So I'm one of these guys nuts that I got to get my shots up before a game. So I I get in the locker room quick. I get dressed really quickly. I'm always the first one out on the floor. Like I'm 30 seconds, not like the guys nowadays. That takes our guys 37 minutes to get dressed. I'm 30 seconds. My stuff's on. I'm on the court. I want to shoot by myself so I can get reps before anybody get out to you. I walk on the floor. I'm I'm starting to shoot. My, body, my back is killing me. So I'm starting to shoot and the whole gym is chanting Grasso sucks. I mean the whole sentence <laughs> I'm the only one in the gym. And now I can't make a shot. So I'm missing shot after shot and they're getting louder and louder. It was it was I'm actually I was laughing as it was going on. But it's an, it was an unbelievable experience because it's something at at our level. Sometimes you don't get to feel an environment like that. I mean right. it was to me. I say to this day, and I've coached in NCAA tournaments, I've won conference championships, I've played at Kansas. It was the best environment I've ever been in in my life. The place was rocking. And every time we go and play at Central, I talk to the radio guys, and we talk to them. They still talk about, and the Hartford current guys, they all talk about it, being that being the best basketball atmosphere they've ever seen in a college basketball game. And it was one of those things, and unless you were there or were part of it, like I talked to people about it, it was unbelievable. It was, it was really a special thing that I still to this day think about that game really often. Like not winning that game is something that still sits on me <laughs> to this day. I'm going to turn 40 next week. And still to this day, there's nights I'll lay up at night and think about, there's a play where Rob Monroe was pushing the ball on the left side of the floor. i made four threes in a row in the first half. He's on the left foul line extended. I was on the right wing and he didn't skip the ball to me. He drove it and missed a floater. And I'm still angry today that he didn't skip it to me because I was about to make my fifth three in a row. And I told Bill Mecca, I'm about to make five threes in the first half today. And Mecca, every three I made, I looked over at Bill Mecca, who was doing the game on the radio. So I wanted him to skip the ball after me so I could get my fifth three. The problem was, then we went to halftime, and Howie wouldn't let me get a touch in the second half. (laughs) So I made my four threes in the first half, and then they face-guard me the rest of the game.
0: It was, it was an unbelievable experience. Uh, so your career ends that night. It was a close game, really good game, central wins. Um, so you finish your career. I'm looking at some of the numbers, over 1,100 points, 400 assists, 200 plus three-pointers. When it was over, was there a feeling of satisfaction from an individual and team perspective about what the program accomplished during your time?
1: I mean, I th- the initial – initially, no. Initially, I was – completely heartbroken because I wanted to go to the NCAA tournament so badly. And I knew that that was going to be the end of my career because of my back. So it was very hard for me. Like the day we lost that game, I was inconsolable because I knew I was done. My back was a mess. I knew I was going to have to have surgery. Like I knew my career was over. And that was a really hard thing for me that I wasn't going to be able to play competitive basketball anymore. But as time went on and I was able to look back and able to reflect, when you get the personal piece out of it, something I'm really proud of, you know, that me and Bill, Bill's again, my best friend. um, We came in and we were ranked last in the country when when we went to Quinnipiac, no one knew what Quinnipiac was division two school, won four games and four years later, you're playing on ESPN, in one of the best environments in college basketball, a chance to go to the NCAA tournament. So I think it's something me and him talk about every time we see each other is we were able to really, bring something to a high level in four years. And so we talked about when we got to campus. When we got together, we just thought we were going to win because we thought we were good players. We just kind of had that air about us that we're going to figure out a way to win. We're going to win here. And to be able – we learned how hard it was. It wasn't as easy as we thought it was going to be. But right. to bring that program to that level and then for Quinnipiac to go where it's gone since is something we are very proud of.
0: Let's time shift for a second. Fast forward 12 years, you're inducted into the Quinnipiac Hall of Fame. Uh, Bill is in the Hall of Fame. You went in with Bill, correct? Yeah. And then Nate was in a couple of years earlier. How special was that for you, especially going in with, with Bill Romano, to, to be able to look back on your time as sort of pioneers of, of Quinnipiac hoops in, in the Division One era?
1: Yeah, there were two really special things about that. One, going in with Bill was the best thing. I mean, I'm so glad they did that because that was my brother. And we did it together. We could celebrate it together. And – the memories we have together will last a lifetime. Um, And then the second piece was, you know, like I said, being the son of a coach, my bond with my dad, my dad was my best friend my my dad was my everything. And for him to be there as in kind of the later years of his life, as he wasn't doing great physically and to be able to see that and see how proud he was, because, you know, there were, I mean, you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in 95 degree gyms with no air conditioning on Sunday afternoons at 4 o'clock when guys were at the beach, of him rebounding for me, getting shots up. Not because I love to do it, and he was a great father. And to be able to have him see the smile on his face and know that he got some satisfaction out of seeing that too and to see how proud he was was the best
0: moment of all that for me. That's awesome. Uh, Let's talk about Joe DeSantis. I love Joe DeSantis. I didn't love him so much when he was a coach, but I love him now, and he's a great announcer for the NEC. How important of a mentor was he to you both at your time at Quinnipiac and since then?
1: Playing for Joe, you know, he was tough. He was fiery. He got after you. Um, There's times I probably hated him because he was yelling at me every day and get tougher, play harder, you know, but it helped. I needed it. At the time, you don't know that that's you can look back 20 years later and say, I probably needed everything he was saying to me and he was the right coach for me. It was the right system. I picked the right coach to play for. But there was times we butted heads. I probably thought I knew more than I did, or maybe I was right sometimes, but I was a little bit hard-headed. And, you know, Joe is stubborn and tough, and, but I loved playing for him. I loved his competitiveness and how he'd fight for us. He had our backs. He cared about us, and I always knew he had our back, and I always knew we'd fight for him. I remember playing Robert Morris at our place, and it was the game, first game I came back from my back. I hadn't practiced, I, and he just played me. Like, I owe so much to him. The fact that he played me those games my senior year into the playoffs, and I remember him saying in the press conference after we lost to Central about me playing with a back injury. And he said, "He said I owe it to Jared. I'll play him. I'll play him until he can't walk anymore." And that that quote to me was the most very moving to me because he gave me an opportunity. He didn't need to play me. The team was playing well going into the tournament. I was I wasn't a shell of the player I was. I could make an open shot, but I couldn't move. But he still went with me because of how hard I worked for my career. And I think I gave the program everything I could. And our our relationship after that has grown into, I mean, he's a father figure to me, you know, outside of my dad who passed, he's one of the two or three people that I go to any major decision I'm going to make in my life. Joe DeSantis is someone I'm going to pick up the phone and call because I know he's going to tell me the truth, whether it's what I want to hear or not. He's always going to tell me the truth and he's always going to, try and do what he feels is best for me. I and mean, I know he's somebody I can trust. So our relationship has really grown more and more over the years to now he's someone that is a confidant I talk to at least once a week. And I've never made a major decision in my life without consulting with Joe first.
0: When you're in college, you're talking about your injuries. You say, I know my career's over. Is there a point during your collegiate experience where you think that coaching is, is a viable route for you?
1: I mean, I knew I was going to coach since I was – 15 years old. I mean, I knew when playing was over, I wanted to coach. So when I was in college, I was just taking classes to get through school because I was going to be a basketball coach like my dad was. I was a daddy's boy and I'm going to follow daddy's lead and I want to coach. I love being in the gym. I love what dad does. And I mean, I just grew up, it's all I knew. So I knew at that age, 15, 16 years old, that I'm coaching when I'm done playing. So as much as you want to keep playing because you love it and the competitiveness and you're a player, then there's that slide from going from player to coach. And it was hard at first. You know, I, I thought I wanted to be a coach, and, but that, like, first year, I was a grad assistant at Hofstra, and that transition from player to coach for me was difficult because I still had the mindset of a player, and, and I still want, I did want to be playing. You know, I don't know, if I, I don't know if I did as good a job as a graduate assistant in my first year as I could have. Because in my mind, I still want to be a basketball player. I don't know if I was quite ready to be a coach yet, to be honest.
0: So you started uh, Hofstra. You go to Hartford, back to Quinnipiac, then to Fordham. Your last year at Fordham, you wind up taking over as interim coach um, for part of the season. What did you learn from that experience?
1: I was on the phone with the junior college coach this morning, just talking about being young. He was a young head coach. Uh, It was the best three months of my life. And we didn't win many games. Um, I learned everything I needed to about what being a head coach is all about moving over those 18 inches is a major, major change. Your life changes, your responsibilities change. And I learned it on the fly. You know, you're always preparing to become a head coach, but you think I'm at my press conference. I'm going to meet my players. I'm going to like this, the the usual way that that would go, not. I'm going to be, my boss is going to be removed and uh, the next day I'm going to be a coach, and then I'm going to be coaching a game a day later. So I was thrown through the fire, and it was just adjust and let's figure this out. And I learned a lot on the fly, good and bad. Um, I think I became a lot better for it. Um, was I ready? I don't know. Our team wasn't very good, so it's hard. I think I think my kids played hard for me. I think we did some things recruiting-wise. I got five commitments as an interim head coach. I was I was running the program like it was going to be mine. That's what I was told to do. So I was out recruiting. I was fundraising. I was doing all those things because they said, run the program like you're going to be the next head coach here. So I actually had five commitments, four of whom ended up being really good Division One players. Um, but we didn't win a lot of games. So what I learned was you need to win to keep your job. Um, but moving over those 18 inches and in those three months gave me the – the vision of what I needed to do to become a head when I become a head coach again, the things I do differently and how I prepare differently. So I think it was, it, it was the best thing that ever happened in my career to be honest with you.
0: After Fordham, you have this unbelievable eight year run at Iona five Mac titles, three in a row at one point you recruit all these great players come in under Tim. Uh, what was the, what's the key for you to recruiting at this level?
1: I mean, I think evaluation is the biggest piece. We went two ways at Iona. We were really good in the transfer market and we got some real under the radar guys with no division one scholarship offers. So everyone looks at those groups. And again, it's funny yesterday, I was watching one of the Iona one shining moments and I was looking at the players on one of the teams and I was like, Oh my God, we were good. Like there were like nine guys on that team that would be first team all league players right now. Like, Four or five years later, if they were in the league now, we literally had nine. Our ninth man started at Purdue. Our ninth man on the 2016 team started at Purdue this year. So that's how good that team was. Um, but he didn't have any Division One scholarship offers when we took him. He ended up transferring. We had guys, you know, we had A.J. English, no Division One scholarship offers, 2,000-point scorer. Said Casimir, no Division One scholarship offers, 1,500-point scorer. So it was kind of a combination of some high-major transfers, some JUCO transfers and older guys. And then some good evaluations of high school guys who were the right fit for Tim's system. And I also did work for the best basketball, arguably the best basketball coach in the country, who's a wizard. So you put that kind of talent together, and then you have that such a great coach who was a perfect storm.
0: You spent eight years there. I'm sure along the way there were, there were some jobs along the way that, that were probably attractive to you. But in 2018, you get your chance at Bryant. What made the Bryant program attractive to you to leave a really good situation at Iona? You
1: no, know, it's funny. When I came up for my first interview, I got there early. It was snowing. I kind of took a little walk around campus and the place was beautiful. Now just walking around, you kind of get a feeling. I was like, I'm going to get this job. And I was involved with the other head coaching jobs at that point. I had just come back from interviewing somewhere. So I had some other things going on and I actually was offered another job before Bryant offered me their job. Um, I was on campus and just kind of got a feeling. I said, I think I'm going to get this job. I think they were like, they were bringing about seven or eight guys in for on-campus interviews. And I walked in there and just, it, it, it felt right. It felt, it actually felt Quinnipiac-ish to me in terms of the campus and the just the kind of the family feel of the place. And this was just walking around campus. Then I had a chance to meet with the administration, meet with Bill and after sitting sit down with Bill and then uh, Ron Makeley. I mean, The leadership was unbelievable, and their vision for what they wanted Bryan Athletics to be and, in turn, what they wanted the basketball program to be was really eye-to-eye with what I was looking for. And I thought it was a place my family could be happy and a place where we could be successful doing it the right way by working really hard, bringing in good kids, bringing in student athletes. And most importantly, it's such a family atmosphere. My family and children and my wife are such a big part of this for me. Like, this isn't just my own journey. My family is part of this journey. And I wasn't going to take a job somewhere that they couldn't be a part of it. And it's great because they can be around. They'll live seven minutes from campus. My wife can stop by. My boys stop by practice. I bring my son to press conferences with me. That's because of the way I grew up around the game. That stuff's very important to me, that they can be a part of my coaching journey. And I can hopefully raise them
0: the same way I was raised. Competitive, competitively speaking, Brian had a really good – they had like a three-year run from 12 to 15 where they were you know, near the top of the conference. They kind of – they fall on hard times. It was a two-win league season the year before you got there. There was, there was some talent for sure. You had, you know, Adam Grant and Naduba and, and Towns were, 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 were there for you. What were your initial goals when you took over your first season with what you knew you had coming in and who you knew you had coming back?
1: I mean, my goal is always going to be to win a championship. So that's what we talked about from jump. Now those guys had to learn. It sounds good. Like we, we all want to talk about winning championships and we all want to talk about how hard we're going to work, but you guys don't know what hard work is yet. And I think it was a little bit of, this is the way I do things. Uh, Tim O'Shea had a good run and very good basketball coach. Now we have kind of, we're going to do things a little differently. Um, and just teaching my style, my culture, uh, the way we were going to handle ourselves every day, the way we were going to work every day. And for them, it was an adjustment. You know, the early on, some of them, I think, were looking around like, what just hit us? So, guys, I, I just I went to three NCAA tournaments in a row. I know what it takes. You just got to believe. And that first group, we had some injuries. Ike was out for the year. It wasn't an over, overly, ta- overly talented group from top to bottom. Those kids played really hard for me. Um, I thought they competed. I thought they fought and, and played really hard every night. I don't know if we were talented enough or to get to the level we wanted to, but made the conference tournament. And I think we took the first step in the right direction. We were the only team in the country, a triple-R win total. So, for me, the biggest thing was kind of getting our culture in place, and I think we did that. Were you,
0: by the year's end, were you satisfied with the progress that the team made from the start of the year to the end of the year?
1: Absolutely. I remember uh, December 9th, I want to say, we played Yale at home. I mean, we got drubbed. They probably beat us by 50. I walked upstairs, sat in my office, head in my arms, was like, we're, we're in trouble. And we just went back to work. You know, it was – we just worked. And we just kept working and working. And my thing was, remember on December 12th, we, we completely changed the way we played. We were playing fast early on, shooting a lot of threes, playing transition. We just didn't have the ability to do that. We weren't talented enough. So I scrapped it, started walking ball up the floor, grinding games out. From, the, from December 12th until the start of league play, we decided – We're changing what we're doing. We called it training camp, and it it worked. You know, we ended up playing Iowa December 29th, had them on the ropes. It was a tie game with two minutes left. Won our first league game against St. Francis, and we were very competitive in the league. Even games we lost, every game was a close game. Losing St. Francis, PA in the first round of the conference tournament, we lost 64-60. We were right there. So I think we took steps in the right direction. Those kids kept working and kept competing.
0: As you said, your team tripled uh, the win total, so there was some good progress made that year. You head to the, uh, this past season, you bring in some more talent. You got Michael Green and Benson Lynn and Charles Pride and Paul Ligis. A lot of talent. Did, that, did the influx of talent that came in, did that change the way you approached the season style-wise to do things that you, maybe you wanted to do the previous year but you couldn't?
1: You know what? Closer... But we still had Bash Towns coming back, and obviously Bash this season didn't go the way we wanted with the injury. So I didn't – I wasn't going to – we'll play much faster moving forward than we ever have before. This year we'll be – look like a different team. Um, so we were, gonna, we were going to play differently, but I still had Bash, and I wanted to play through Bash because he made such strides. He had a really good uh, junior year. So it was a strange – it was a strange deal early on because Bash was out so we're practicing a certain way, but when he comes back, he makes you a little bit different. He's a really good player. And we kind of went through three seasons almost where our team changed and I had to figure out how we were going to play with this group of guys. So I don't think we ever, I think we played very, we had a stretch. We were very good defensively early on um, and kind of found our identity defending, but I never really got our group to play the way I thought we would because our team with injuries and guys coming back and out and back and out and never had the group that I thought I was going to have going into the season
0: with those three freshmen that came in two it's like a two-part question did you think that they could have the impact that they did and I guess the other part of it is are you is there are some nerves as a head coach to do the sort of the trial by fire approach where you're, you're going to put them out there and let them sink or swim
1: I knew those kids could play, and I knew they had really good work ethics. Guys who are gym rats, I trust. If I trust you, I play you. And those guys work really hard and put a lot of time into basketball. And Benson Lynn has the best work ethic of anyone I've ever coached in my career, hands down. It's not even close. Spends more time in the gym than anybody I've ever seen. And that's and I've coached a lot of good players with good work ethics. Charles Pride, and Mike Green are all in in the gym all the time. So because of the way those guys are wired. There was a trust level with me early on. Now, I like guys who are like me. I like gym rats. I like guys who love to be in the gym. I want guys who love to play basketball because I have a major passion for it, and I want to be around guys who have the same passion. And those three had it. So I was going to give those guys some rope. And those guys, because they were talented guys, you know, they earned what they got. They didn't just play because I was throwing freshmen. They were my better players. I put out, I'm going to play my best players. I'm trying to win. That's my job. Those guys were my best players when I was playing them. And all of them had some really good games as freshmen. And then you add that, yes, they were thrown to the fire. Best thing that ever happened to any of them. You know, Mike Green was exhausted by the end of the season. I remember talking to his dad with, like, two games left. He's like, he's shot. I said, well, you better figure it out because he's playing 38 <laughs> minutes a game and he's my best player right now. So, but, you know, he just he's, – he's a tough little kid. And he's a – I mean, he didn't have a Division II scholarship offer when we took him. He was the NEC Rookie of the Year. Why? Because there's a toughness and a swagger to him. And he fits me. When I went to Quinnipiac, at that point when I signed with Quinnipiac, I had no Division One Scholarship offers left. I like guys like that with a chip on their shoulder. I think those guys tend to overachieve. And I think these those three guys you named are going to be overachievers.
0: Another player last year we, we mentioned was uh Paul Now, a couple things with him. Is it a luxury to have a first the luxury to have a rim protector like that, which not everybody has. And two is, and I noticed this a lot. You'd, you'd, maybe you'd be on a bad run. You'd call a timeout. You're coming out of these timeouts, and you're running these screen and roll alley-oop, DeAndre Jordan-like plays for him that that worked a lot, that worked a lot. To have a guy who can play that screen and roll style with your with your quick guards, how important is he to the success of your team?
1: Yeah, Hall's unique. I mean, he's obviously an elite-level athlete, elite-level shot blocker, and he played the second half of the year completely banged up. I mean, where he was at in, like, the end of December until right before the, our FDU game, so I don't know the dates, but, like, he was really good. He hit his stride where he was healthy. I mean, he was freakish athletically. He had games with eight, nine blocks. He had a game with eight blocks in the second half. And like you said, he can put pressure in the rim, so when you have little quick guards and you putting them in ball screens and you have Hall rolling to the rim, there better be rim protection or it's going to be a dunk. So he does make your team dynamic Um separated shoulder, then had a sprained ankle, so missed four or five games. And he was never back to his healthy self the rest of the way. So I think he struggled a little bit down the stretch. But he's a unique talent. And I'm mean, physically, he's as gifted as, as anyone I've been around. And I think he has a chance to have a really good year for us this year if he, if he can use this offseason the right way.
0: We saw the end of Adam Grant's career this year. What an outstanding ball player. Uh, one of my favorites. Um, he always seemed to show up in the big games. We always looked throughout his whole career. This year against Rutgers, he went twenty-three six and six. Always playing his best against the best. What made him such a great player in your mind?
1: I mean, he got to go and making shots. There was nothing you could do to stop him from scoring. And I, I didn't have to run any plays for him. He was just going to find the ball and get a shot up. He's actually really unique that he loved shooting threes off the bounce. So he'd be he catch the ball open want to shot fake, take a dribble and take a more difficult shot. Like he's a hard shot maker. He'll miss open ones, but he'll make shots (laughs) from 27 feet, falling away. But he's, he's a high, high level shooter. Um, And like you said, at Rutgers, at Maryland, at Iowa, those big time games, he was always up for those games and always made big time shots. And he'd always make those silencing threes. You know, you'd be up eight and the team would be making a run and he'd bury a 25 footer. So obviously we'll miss his explosiveness offensively in the way he could shoot the
0: ball. One of the more satisfying games this year, not just for you and Brian, but probably for the whole league is when you go into Fordham and you beat an A-10 team on the road, pretty convincingly sort of going away at the end. How satisfying was that for, for you in establishing your program?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a big step for us to win a money game an Atlantic 10 game. You know, anytime you can go on the road and win a money game, I think it's a big for a program at our level and, Brian had never beaten a team in the Atlantic 10. Obviously, I coached at Fordham, so there was some, I had some family and friends there. So it was nice to, for me getting back to New York with family and friends, able to see it. So I think it was a great win for our program. And it's the kind of thing, again, you're just trying to springboard and get better every year. For me, it's about taking the next step. And that was a step for us. Never had an Atlantic 10 win. It was our first, for me, our first bye win. So just a step moving forward.
0: I know that for you, and you say it all the time, that packing the Chase Center is important to you and getting that fan support. And one of the games that stands out to me this year was the Columbia game where um, Simmons comes down, steals the ball, dunks it at the end to win the game for you. Places going berserk. Was this sort of what you envisioned when you took the job, what you wanted to be from moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what.
1: My first game as a head coach, we were playing St. Peter's. There were about 27 people in the stands. I looked around. I was like, ah, not a lot of atmosphere here right now. And a year later, you talk about that Columbia game or our Brown game, our opener. I mean, it was stand, basically standing-room-only crowd, and that's, that's what we want. We want it to be an atmosphere. We, w- we want to put a product on the floor that people want to see. And, again, you got to win games for people to come. you got to be competitive, which obviously we've turned the corner to be competitive this year. And I think we put a good product on the floor. Kids play really hard. I think it's an exciting style of play. And I think we've really turned the corner in our attendance. I think it's something that's going to continue to move forward because we have a great staff who does a phenomenal job getting people in the building. So the
0: team is off, and the team struggles at the beginning of conference play. You have a great non-conference season. Um, you're struggling, but you're every one of your press conferences, you're very consistent in your messaging. That, I'm not worried. We're going to figure this out. My guys are playing hard. What led you to believe that you could change everything by the end of the season and get it all straightened out.
1: So I've been through it before, you know, I've I've got coach teams that went to the NCAA tournament where we had struggled at different parts of the season. It's such a long year. You're going to go through it at some point. And when you see your team every day, you know, you guys are still dialed in and still working hard. You're going to turn the corner at some point. We lost four or five games that we should, we could have won. I think at that point we had led in the last eight minutes maybe of five of those seven losses. So you're right there. So what do you have to do? Get back in the gym and get better. And I was confident we were going to be able to do that. So I wasn't panicked. Like if I know our culture's right, I know we're working hard every day. I know our guys are doing the right things. I'm not one of those guys who panics over a loss. I don't panic over three losses because you're going to go through it. It's a long season. You're together for a long time. Only really, really special elite teams and you're talking about this only at the highest level go through the year on skate. You're going to have some problems, you going to have some bumps in the road. Sometimes you have to readjust and figure it out and I felt like that was going to happen.
0: The team did better second half of the season, uh, much better. Were there did you implement any changes along the way or was it a matter maybe of some of your young guys just getting a little more seasoned than you know the art of finishing out a game or maybe it's maybe it's both?
1: I think it was a couple things. I think we got a little healthier. Um, we got a whole back. You know, he missed, I want to say four games. Um, and we were managing multiple injuries through that stretch. So I think we got a little healthier. I think Mike green really started playing his best basketball late in the year. He kind of carried us down the stretch. A couple of those wins at St. Francis, New York. And I mean, he put us on his back and carried us um, Wagner at home. Yeah, I think he had 15 points in the second half. So he wasn't a freshman anymore. And we started making some shots that we didn't make in some other games, like very similar games. We just made some of the shots that we missed in other games. Why does that happen? I wish I had the answer. I'm going to keep trying to figure it out. But, some, you know, you play when you're playing three freshmen that many minutes and Hall YCS is another new guy, it's a lot of new guys. And as, as the year went on, I think those guys, especially the freshmen, started to kind of figure out, and I told them this was going to happen, but you don't learn until you go through it. Winning's hard. Like, just because we beat Fordham or played Maryland close, like, nobody cares. We beat St. Francis P.A. the first game. No one cares. Winning in this league is really hard. Every game is a battle. Home, road, first place, last place, doesn't matter. Winning's hard. They learn that, and it's going to help them down the line.
0: Those three freshmen, they win nine Rookie of the Week awards. Mike Green's Rookie of the Year. Benson's on the All-Rookie team. Charles is as good as any of those guys. Um, Let's talk about Mike Green for a second. He, you've, you've, We've talked about it a little bit, but I, I love him because he's got, he's one of those New York City guards. He's got that swagger about him in his game that I, I love to watch. Um, how, good, how good can that um, player – how good can he be?
1: Mike's got a chance to be special. Um, because of what you said, he has that New York City confidence and swagger, and he thinks he can play, and he's fearless. I mean, I threw him out there in our Brown game. He came off the bench. We're down – Fourteen to two, I threw him out there, and he's just ready to go. And he put got us back in that game in his first Division One basketball game. So he's confident, he's tough, he's a worker, and he fears nobody.
0: One of the things that I that was uh, different about the team last year was the emphasis on rebounding. Went from last in rebounding margin your this year. How much was this to you in both the recruiting process to get players that can do that and then actually going out and doing it?
1: I think it was more just something that we emphasize more. If we're we're, going to get out and transition, we need to rebound. We can get extra shots on the offensive end if we offensive rebound. So for us, it was just a much bigger emphasis because of our personnel. We thought we had a group. Charles Pride's a really good rebounding guard. Pat Harding could rebound and Hall could rebound. So with those three guys, we really wanted to chase it on
0: the glass a little more this year. Looking forward to next year, what does Bryant need to do to become a legit NEC title contender in your mind? I mean,
1: I I really like the group we have. I like our talent level. I like our character. I like our work ethic. Um, Until I see them together, it's 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 so hard with everything going on right now. We didn't have our guys in the spring, questions on obviously what's going to happen in the summer. But I think we have a good group. They're going to be a little older, a little more mature. Freshmen aren't freshmen anymore run some older transfers that have kind of been around the block and uh, have been through some high level games and played in high level programs. So I think if our guys are committed to working really hard every day and buying into what we do, there's no reason we can't compete to win a championship.
0: Having a coach on, and I've wanted to ask coach this for a while, things have changed so much since you were a player as far as analytics. How important is that to you and your program, as far as the players you recruit, your practices, and your you know your game prep?
1: I mean, I use it a ton. I have a director of analytics on my staff, um, so I use it a ton. I'm really into it. For me, he gives me a bunch. There's certain things I want, and then he'll just throw information at me at times. Some stuff I I like and use. Some stuff I'll pass by. But something we are really into, and I think you're crazy if you don't utilize it because numbers are numbers. And numbers don't lie. So when you're talking to players and I I'm for me a lot with teaching points, like, no, that's not a good shot for you because you shoot 12% on pull-up jump shots, So that's why you can't shoot that shot anymore. Like when that, when the number's not involved, they don't see it. When you show them the stat it become now it it hits them in the face a little harder and they don't want to hear it, but numbers are numbers. So I use them a lot. I think it, I think you'd be crazy not to, and I'm blessed to have a director of athletics on my staff. Who's a student at school. That's going to be phenomenal
0: couple more questions. Just talking about the NEC, what, what would you say are the major differences, if there are any, between when you played and now in this conference?
1: Well, I don't think there's been a team like that Central team in the last two years. I mean, I always think, of course, Lee Edwards and John Tice. And I mean, I remember having 25 against Central in a game my freshman year. then we went to Central and I had Rick Mickens guarding me. Like, that was a really, really good team. So I haven't seen a team as good as that group since I've been in the league um but I don't remember the parody like this like I don't remember it being every game like to me every game is close every game is a dogfight. fight I feel like every game we're in and as a player I didn't feel like that so the parody of the league right now I think is at a really high level
0: one of the things about the league now is that the coaches are high level coaches in in the way they go about their business. You're going up against your tools and your criminals and your horrendous your breakers, all these guys, night after night. How hard is that knowing that they're how successful they've been as as game planners and game administrators?
1: Yeah, no, listen, this is a, a league with terrific coaches who do a great job recruiting and a lot of guys who have won a lot of games. So for me, I'm one of the young guys in the league who's still trying to figure it out. And there's a lot of guys who have had a ton of success for a long period of time some guys for a shorter period of time. But you are never walking into a gym. You're coaching against high-level coaches who have won a lot, beaten high-major teams, gone to NCAA tournaments. So you, you know you're, your players in for a battle, and as a coach, you're going to be in for a battle
0: every night. You as a player transitioned from D2 to D1. Merrimack did that this year. How impressive was what they did to you, the way they were able to come in and, and win the regular season?
1: Yeah, I mean, Joey Gallo should have won National Coach of the Year. Um, Great. but it, does, it goes to two things. Joey did a phenomenal job with that team. Um, and when I say he should have won National Coach of the Year, I really mean that. Number two, it shows that upperclassmen at the Division two level, there's not a huge difference between those guys and the guys at our level. You know, it's, there's a very fine line in all of this. It's not – there's the elite guys. There's the guys who are playing at the Blue Bloods that are going to be NBA players and lottery picks. But there's a fine line between the rest of them if you can get a group who care about each other, are willing to play hard, willing to buy into a system, and are coachable, then you can win games. It just goes to show you it's not necessarily the most talented team. It's a team who plays the best together. And they're the team who played the best together this year.
0: Last question. I ask this as the last question to almost everybody. What makes Bryant such a special place?
1: I, mean, I think Bryant offers the total package for a student athlete. Talking about great academics, beautiful campus, in a beautiful area, great facilities, unbelievable leadership around Makeley, and great new president coming in, unbelievable athletic director with Bill Smith. Um, So I really believe it's a total package. Um, It's the reason I took the job here. I was offered a job but it's for a team that won 20 games the year before. Coach left and took a job at a higher level, and I took the Bryant job because of everything it has to offer. I really believe it is the total package for a student athlete who wants to have a great academic experience, play high-level Division I basketball, and a chance to be successful for the rest of their lives because they're going to leave with a degree from Bryant.
0: Well, there it is, Jared Grasso, a four-year student athlete in the NEC at Quinnipiac, now about to enter his third year as head coach at Brian. Jared, thanks so much for spending some time reminiscing, walking down memory lane. It was, it was a lot of fun prepping for this and then, and then talking to you as I saw you as a student athlete and now 20 years later as a coach.
1: I appreciate it, Ron. Really enjoyed it.
0: Best wishes to you and your family, riding this whole thing out, and hopefully you'll be able to get back on the court, uh, and everyone will soon. So good talking to you.
1: Stay safe. My best to your family.